This is Steve Harper, and you're watching the TV Writer Podcast. My name is Gray Jones, and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast, partner of Script Magazine, episode 105 for July 7th, 2020. Well, today I'm so pleased to bring you an interview with TV writer, playwright, and actor Steve Harper, who has written for Covert Affairs, American Crime, and most recently, God Friended Me. You're going to love the interview. He is a, a very well-studied person. He went to not only Yale, but also Harvard and Juilliard. And he's written over 20 plays. He's acted in, in a number of, of TV series. And he's, uh, he's uh, produced web series that got somebody nominated for an Emmy and just a whole bunch of stuff. Um, you'd think that all of these things are separate things, being a playwright, being an actor, um, being a TV writer. But uh, as he shares it, um, he shares how these things are all blended together, and, and his experience in the other fields has really informed his writing in television. This week's episode is once again sponsored by Pilar Alessandra, the author of the Coffee Break Screenwriter and On the Page podcast. And she is again offering a 10% discount off one of her interactive online classes. This one is Writing TV, and it runs four Saturdays from July 11th to August 1st. In the first three classes, Pilar helps you create a series pitch, world, cast, and pilot. Class four is all about the business, and here Carol Kirshner takes over, discussing staffing, selling, and obtaining representation. The class is open to TV writers at all levels and is taught through Zoom in real time. To get your 10% off, use the coupon code on the page 10 at checkout. You're going to love the interview and his story, and so let's roll. Well, this is Gray, and I am here with... Steve Harper, who is a TV writer, playwright, and actor, and was written for Covert Affairs, American Crime, and most recently, God Friended Me. How are you doing, Steve? I'm doing great. Really happy to talk to you. And uh, yeah, I, I've been watching your, your podcast. It's been really fun to have uh, people that I know and that I know about. Yep. You had mentioned that you were a friend of uh, Derek Hughes, who was on recently. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I enjoyed the Sean Ryan interview as well. It's really cool. Mm, thank you, thank you. Uh, well, let's uh, let's talk about you. I mean, I'm really, really fascinated about your story uh, for a number of reasons. Um, uh, but I love, it, especially in your bio, how you mentioned uh, growing up in New York with a Catholic father and a mother obsessed with Stephen King and true crime <laughs> novels. That must have been fun. Um, talk about your early days and how that influenced you creatively. Yes. Yeah, so my dad is what I call a major Catholic. Uh, and he believes in the books of the church. And my mother believes in the books of the horror section of the bookstore. Uh, so uh, what that meant for me is that I would come home from Catholic school and I'd say, Mom, what's going on in Salem's lot? You know, and she would fill me in. Uh, and so consequently, I feel like I, uh, I, I grew up thinking about the idea of not only what was going on in the planet, on the planet that we could see, but also what was going on that we couldn't see. So, you know, I think uh, the notion of that kind of filtering into the kind of writing I do, which is often about magical realism, the sense of, you know, I like to write about things that I call the invisible things. So that's mm. stuff people aren't talking about, like race or sexuality or politics or religion, or sometimes there are just ghosts or spirits in my work. And that's really what sort of informs uh, the, way I, the way I see the world. Very cool. And, and I know we'll talk about God. God friended me a lot later, but that probably was a good fit for that show. Yes, absolutely. I think that the notion of this kind of uh, 
you know, spiritual flavor or the, the idea of, uh, of exploring issues of faith or the issues of like what we can't see was definitely um, one of the reasons I was really excited to be part of that show. Very cool. Now, you are extremely well studied. Um, <laughs> I mean, Yale and Harvard and Juilliard. Talk about that. Yes. Well, you know, one of the things I say about that is that like that and a metro car will get me across town. So like, you know, ultimately, uh, I still, you know, put my my shoes on one one at a time like everybody else. Uh, at the same time, part of the, the explanation of that is my father and my mother were both um, in the New York City school system. That's that's where they met. That they were both teachers. My mother was a guidance counselor. And so the the emphasis of education on education in our home was really huge. Hmm. Um, they made it really clear for my brother and I at an early age that they wanted us to get a really good education. And I think specifically, you know, uh, they wanted us to be able to, in their words, like to compete with white society, with white mm. people, by getting, you know, as good an education as humanly possible, so that that might potentially give us, you know, uh, an equal footing or a leg up in the industry, in the world. Um, so that was really part of my thinking from early on. Hmm. Well, I think you have much more than a leg up. I mean... And in terms of ped pedigree, I mean, any one of those would have been a great yeah. pedigree. But Yale right. and Harvard and Juilliard, I think you got it covered. Yeah, what can I say? I'm a, I'm a doer. Uh, <laughs> you know, but also, I mean, my mother had really, she really sort of planned it out. I went to a specific uh, school on Long Island that she thought would be potentially a good feeder school to a, you know, to a to an Ivy League school. And that was a... a a Quaker high school, so mm -hmm. uh, all the way on the other side of Long Island. And it was an interesting kind of culture shock experience of wearing mm -hmm. jackets and ties and going to Quaker meeting every Thursday. And, you know, um, yeah, it was very sort of specific and deliberate plan on my mother's part, which mm -hmm. I'm really grateful for, actually. Yeah. And now you, you started out primarily playwriting. Talk about that. Yeah. So I, you know, I think early on, I really wanted to be an actor. And, and I had done, there were so many things that I had done as an actor. I'd actually gotten my first agent when I was a senior in high school and wow. had auditioned for a ton of stuff. Yeah. Uh, so that was kind of miraculous. I actually, there was a woman, uh, a girl who went to my high school who also went to this performing arts center uh, in the next town over on Long Island where I grew up. And she, uh, the woman who ran it basically was representing kids uh, for television and film stuff. Like they would eventually connect them with uh, pretty quickly with agents. Mm -hmm. And they were looking for guys. They didn't have very many guys who went to this performing arts center. So I got introduced to her. I got an agent. I started auditioning. And I think along the way, I got to the, I got the sense that, you know, I just wanted a chance ultimately in terms of my playwriting to, you know, to begin to create material where I felt like I really fit in. Hmm. So, you know, the whole thing in college where studying theater as a theater studies and English major, we would have to choose our own scenes, you know, hmm. and quite often I would choose scenes from classic plays, you know, that we were allowed to choose like Streetcar Named Desire or Long Day's Journey Into Night. And, and I became really... Uh, profoundly aware early on that there weren't, you know, black roles in those pieces. So every time we, we did those plays, every time I had to look for a scene, uh, you know, there was this sort of struggle of where's the material for me that I could perhaps do with, 
you know, a white person in my class or, you know, where are those scenes with, with an interracial couple? Where are those scenes where, you know, it's not like I'm sticking out like a sore thumb or that sort of thing. Uh, and I think those are great pieces of material to cut your teeth on as a as an actor. And at the same time, it became really obvious to me that there was another opportunity to create my own work, to create parts that I was interested in, parts that seemed to speak to my experience, parts that maybe felt a little more uh, appropriate and right on for me, which is not to say that there's, you know, obviously there's nothing wrong with an imaginative, non-traditional take on a classic piece. But the question becomes, you know, how much of that do you want to do? Is that going to be an entire career of non-traditional roles or mm. where are the newer pieces? You know, um, so so eventually that's really what I wanted to do. I also realized that, you know, being an English major was essentially the study of, you know, dead white men, you know, mm. in the English department. Yeah. And uh, and I really wanted to begin to hear voices of color. And, you know, eventually I. I studied with uh, with with Bell Hooks, who's a you know who's an educator and uh, an activist, um, and started to read uh, books by black authors. You know, I got introduced to James Baldwin, and you know, my brain exploded. And I think mm. from that space, I started to say, well, what kinds of things that I can I write, can I create, you know, that come out of this uh, sort of a different kind of consciousness? And that's really what led me to playwriting. And, and you didn't do this in a small way. You you workshopped slash produced over 20 plays. Uh, talk about that. Yes. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, there's something there's something really fantastic about when I got into theater in college. The notion that, you know, one of the things about theater is that you can um, you can create it with very little, you mm. know, so you get a handful of people, you get a dining hall, you get a, you know, a squash court, you get a little, you know, space, a couple of seats, some people, and you can create stuff. So very early on, I, I was, uh, I learned that that was part of my, I think, my calling in a way. I, I spent one summer in college working for uh, the Yale Dramat Summer Children's Theater, you know, and we had like five shows, and we would tour the projects in New Haven. And we went, we went to a prison as well and did like theater workshops and, you know, the sense that we could have these shows and like put up a little backdrop and entertain kids like all over Connecticut, you know, was part of what I really learned. So, you know, eventually I uh, had been working in a writer's group and a friend of mine had wanted to produce an evening of theater uh, in New York at an off-Broadway theater, which he rented and he invited me to be part of it. And, you know, it was really amazing to, to see my work in front of an audience, you know, mm. that I watch several shows, the audience changes every night where they laugh, where they respond, where they, you know, all of those things became really kind of um, galvanizing and exciting. Uh, mm. And I also feel like it's a great, um, it's a terrific kind of launching point for television because mm. what we learn to do as playwrights is create material with very little, you know, mm. you get two people two people in a room and there's a play there potentially. And I think right. people who, who aim directly for television or directly for film are often, um, you know, sort of sucked in by the notion that uh, in TV and film, there's often special effects. There are explosions, there are aliens, there are, you know, helicopters, there are set pieces. And in theater, you just have people and you, you, mm. you learn to sort of get, directly to the heart of what uh, conflict is and what drama is and, you know, how do you, 
you know, how do you create a, a scene that feels like there's dramatic and emotional movement hmm. with just two people on stage? I feel like it's a great training ground for, for other kinds of writing. Absolutely. And I think even if it's not helicopters or explosions, I think it could also be said you, you can break a whole episode of, of, a, of a show. Um, and so you've done all the mechanics of who goes where and who does what. But it's in the scene work that you really get that feeling. And that may be yes, the harder right. thing for people it to also, write. Yes, and it also means, too, you know, I've certainly been on shows where we had this idea about what, what the scene would be and where it would take place. And then you get into the space of, you know, location scouting and all of that, and that location isn't available. So mm. this thing that could be considered a fundamental piece by a writer you know, I think for somebody trained as a playwright, it's just sort of, well, that was just the backdrop. We can still mm. do this scene, you know, in a park or on a beach or, you know, we might have to tweak, tweak some of the dialogue a little bit. But the essence of the scene emotionally and dramatically will will potentially stay the same. Oh, I love that. I love that. And, and I, I know it relates a little bit to sitcom writers that I've talked to who talk about a live studio audience and, and how helpful that is to know every single word and how it triggers with with people and how people respond to things yeah. and, and they talk about you know rewriting even as 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 they sort of get the feel from the audience and that's something you can get on plays not just in comic material yes for sure and i do think there is something you know also having having been an actor on stage it's pretty remarkable the the difference between you can be in a, a comedy show and one night the audience you know they're they're laughing their ass off and the next night crickets like mm. you know you're sort of like is anybody out there you know is this the same play as last night you know yeah. so the sense of that of the the variation of that and and what you can tell and what you can learn from audiences and how you adjust then to mm. what they're doing or not doing is also an interesting piece yeah you know? so now you continued your acting through this time and you worked on a number of of pretty big shows um at what point did you decide that you wanted to write for TV or was this always a thing? Well, I think that I've certainly been uh, obsessed with television since I was a kid. You know, my brother and I used to sort of pretend we had our own talk show and we would sort of play the guests as well as interview each other, that sort of thing. Uh, but then I feel like I, I had kind of forgotten about that space when I was uh, leaning into the notion of being a serious actor and trying to do all these, you know, classical plays or classical scenes and, you know, learn how to do the work. Um, but I, I, what I recognized too was that there was a sense that television was bringing stories that felt um, on some level like a lot more visceral and a lot mm. more sort of uh, modern that spoke more directly to, to the kind of like the specifics of today you know, and, and the idea that I could that one that I could sort of fall into a, you know, a particular show and feel like I was watching something that, you know, just happened yesterday or ripped mm. from the headlines or, you know, the, that that sense of immediacy uh, seemed like a really powerful thing, you know, and I got a chance to uh, be on a number of different shows from, you know, Law and Order Special Victims Unit to Criminal Intent to America's Most Wanted, Homicide, All My Children you know, and, and that was also that was also kind of an amazing piece, too, because, mm -hmm. you know, the acting mechanism, uh, you know, the, the sort of the mechanics of, of those experiences are fundamentally different from theater as well. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually heard um, Laura Linney came to speak to to a, 
to a bunch of people at Juilliard and she was talking about how, you know, you spend all this time in acting school, you know, backstage and in class, like recreating in your mind, like what does the house look like and where's the porch and all this stuff. And, you know, mm. she said she got on a movie set and she didn't have to do any of that work because she was right. in a house on a porch, you know, she's right. like, oh, here it is. Like I can just not do that part of this work. And that's kind of an amazing, uh, mm. you know, an amazing sort of, transformative experience to, to look around and say, Oh, they've, they've created this for me in a way. Mm. And you know, that's exciting. Very cool. And, and so you were accepted into the CBS writers mentoring program. Talk about uh, your application being accepted and what you got out of that program. Yeah, I had, um, you know, my, the way that I had made my way into, you know, I was working on the transition from being an actor to being a writer and I eventually met somebody who knew somebody who directed, was part of the head of the directing program at Juilliard. So I had met with him to see, you know, test out the idea of what Juilliard would be like. And I got a lot of information and he read a piece of mine and he said, you should definitely apply. And I applied and I got in. All of that felt miraculous. Hmm. And afterwards, I got an agent uh, and the agent said to me, I got my agent like within two years of graduating and didn't get oh, wow. the agent right away, uh, which was also, also another interesting piece, simply that I think in the industry, in the industry that we're in, like you have to wait, like sometimes things don't happen right away. Sometimes things don't happen at all. Right. Yeah. But it took a couple of years for me to get connected to this agency. And then when I did, that agent said, are you interested in television? Which I was. And I would go out to L.A. every year for, I don't know, five, six, seven years. Mm -hmm. And I would get a, you know, get a hotel in Beverly Hills and I would take like 15 meetings in a week. So like three meetings every day. And it was a sort of intoxicating time. But mm -hmm. nothing happened for me career wise in all mm -hmm. of that time, which felt really challenging because I kept thinking, oh, I'm going to get a job and then I'm going to be invited to move and all this stuff. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> and it didn't work that way for me. Yeah. Uh, what did happen was I decided to move anyway. And I said, you know, okay, I'm going to take the plunge and move to Los Angeles. And that mm. first year, even though I had an agent and at that time I had a manager, nothing happened. It was really yeah. a challenging. There were like no meetings for me. And when I asked my agent and manager about that, they said, well, you've, you know, you've met with everyone, which seems so absurd, <laughs> you know, uh, in any case, at, during that year, my manager had said to me, we were working on a, uh, a new pilot and I was getting notes from them and stuff. And the manager said, you know, you really ought to think about applying to these diversity programs. Hmm. And at first, you know, I wasn't really interested in that because I thought I moved out here not for an internship. Like, you know, I wanted to get paid and all that. And, you know, and a couple of days later, I thought, well, what are you really doing? But sitting here complaining about the fact that you're not your career is hmm. not moving ahead. And I applied to these programs, uh, a bunch of them. And the truth is, I had applied to programs before. I'd applied to ABC mm. and NBC and Warner Brothers, you know, years before. Uh, and this time I applied to all of those plus CBS. Mm. And I think Fox also had a program that I applied to as well. And CBS was the only program I got into, which was interesting. Mm. Uh, and it completely changed my perception of oh. the industry. Yeah, it, it really turned me around. I mean, I had... You know, I was bringing my actor self to all my TV writer meetings and just being mm. friendly and upbeat and all those things that I can be. And the CBS program really taught me about, you know, how to research somebody and, you know, and what we had all these um, guests 
come in, these executives and showrunners and writers, and we would do these mock showrunner interviews for mm. practice, like in the room. And, and, and you'd stop after 10 minutes. And then Carol Kirshner, who runs the program, who's so brilliant, would yeah. say to the guest, well, how did he or she do? You know, mm. And the guest would say, well, she shouldn't have worn that shirt. And she made that off-color joke, which didn't really work. And I don't think she read my script. And, you know, all <laughs> of these things. Yeah. And so wow. I love so much about, like, for me, yeah. what I realized that, is that there are three, in my brain, there are three kinds of meetings. Hmm. There's the meeting where you come in and people say, tell me about yourself, hmm. you know. And if you're not prepared to have a story to tell them about you, you fail that meeting. Wow. You know, if you just stand there and you're, you know, you, you hem and haw and, you know, don't have a way to talk about yourself. Right. Mm. So the second kind of meeting is tell me about me. Right. So if you haven't done research on the person you're meeting with and you can't talk about the shows they've been on or ask them questions about their own journey, mm. you know, then you fail that meeting. And the third kind of meeting seemed to be to be tell me about my material, you know, whatever mm. you've read to be here, or the show we're working on or whatever that is. And, and what I realized is you can't just say, which I used to do before I was at the CBS program, I used to say, oh, it's really good. You're a really good writer. It's really good. You know? <laughs> what is yeah. that? You, yeah. know, you, have, you have to find your way to some, you know, visceral, specific connection with the material and say, mm. you know, that scene where the grandmother was in the hospital, that happened to me with my mom. Mm. And I felt like I connected to those characters. I felt like I knew yeah. what that was like. And, and, you know, and basically what you're doing is you're, you're creating, pointing out a personal connection so that you say implicitly to this showrunner, I know what that's like. I could write that material. Like mm. I could, I could bring life to that material. I could come up with new ideas that inform that space because I've lived in that space, mm. you know, and with those things armed with those new ideas, I, I started to do, you know, worlds better in terms of meetings that I was having with people and, uh, and, and things completely changed, changed for me in my career. Mm. And, uh, and when we were speaking before you were telling me about, about how, um, your representation mentioned that you needed to, to do more than just a meeting with somebody that you should reconnect with them. Talk about that. Yeah. So it was, I think it was during this same period before I had applied to the programs and I was talking to my agent at the time and saying, you know, feeling really frustrated and saying, I don't know what to do. Like, how, you know, how do I make this work? Like, nothing's really happening. And the agent proceeded to say, well, you know, we introduced you to all these people, you know, over the years. He said, it's your job to make friends with them. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, wait, what? oh, you know, like, it's not just a one and done, you know. And so yeah. one of the things that I say to my coaching clients and that, you know, is one of the things that I do as well is, you know, it's not just your grandmother who wants to hear from you. Like mm -hmm. the notion of being in touch on a regular basis, not to not to always ask for stuff, but simply to right. say, hello, how are you doing? You know, you know, to wish somebody well if their if their project gets picked up or mm -hmm. is nominated for an Emmy or, you know, just to say, you know, this crazy period of time, this crazy COVID-19 period of time you know, on some level is a great excuse for networking because who mm. doesn't love that? Hey, how are you doing with all everything that's going on? Are you okay? Yeah. Like, you know, and, and I think you can do that from a, a genuine place. Mm. And I really feel like that's one of the things that, that makes the difference for 
for people in this industry who who are who are willing to keep in touch and willing to do that in a good way. Yeah, I I find that there's there's a fear on the part of a lot of uh, people who are starting out, but I I've found over the years, and this is even at the very beginning of my career. I remember I don't know if you ever read that book, um, How to Make It in Hollywood by Linda Buzzle. Um, no, I haven't. Oh, re- really great book. A little dated now, but one of the things okay. she she talked about was. Um, I mean, she codified a bit of that. Never ask for something when when you're um, when you're in a meeting like that. But just the idea of reaching out to people and saying, "I would love to ha- have coffee with you," and just pick your brain about what you do, um, yes. and and just ask a lot of questions. A lot of questions. People love talking about themselves, and I've I've found. I can't remember the last time somebody said no. Uh, I mean, I, I've reached out to <laughs> right. showrunners. I've reached out to directors. I've reached out to yeah. all kinds of people in the industry just saying, hey, do you want to grab coffee and talk about what you do? They love it. <laughs> yeah, right. I also think it helps. I think that's absolutely true. And I think it helps, too, to to sort of bound it, to say, mm. you know, I only need 30 minutes of your time or I'd right. love to, you know, to make sure that they understand that I'm not going to, you know, person's not going to sit there for you know, two to five hours, like, mm. you know, writing somebody's life story. But, you know, can I pop in? Can it just be a coffee? Can we, you know, 30 minutes, whatever. And then yeah. then it's very possible that those people will say, oh, you know what, I have an hour or mm-hmm. don't worry about the 30 minutes or, you know, it's better to be on the receiving end of the gift of somebody's time mm. than to be sort of just trying to, you know, take up their time, which I think is what people are might be concerned about. Mm. And don't underestimate the power of a congratulations or a so sorry that happened to you or yeah or that kind of thing yes i mean there are certainly people who i've i've met with for shows that i didn't get on that i keep in touch with you know that i'll every now and then i'll say hey congratulations on whatever the pickup or the thing or how are you doing you know and people respond to that you know it's i think people like you know they like to be kept in touch with just like we do Mm-hmm. You know, if somebody reaches out to me and says, hey, how you doing? You know, chances are I'm like, oh, that's so sweet. I'll tell you how I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and and I, I've heard so many examples of uh, even Sean Ryan recently when I, when I was talking with him. He was talking about how um, Joss Whedon was keeping tabs on him as he <laughs> as he went off to another show, even though he didn't get the job on Buffy. Right. Um, Joss was still following his career and yeah. and. And uh, and checking up on him, I mean, you don't know the person that you're keeping in touch with. Maybe maybe they are looking for an opportunity to give you a break. Yes, exactly. Yes, and and or they're just interested in following what you're doing next. You know, mm-hmm. and so that and so that's also the space I think too, because I think that networking creates opportunities where somebody who say didn't hire you on a particular show but is following you might mm-hmm. recommend you to somebody else. Be like, well, yeah. I couldn't hire that person, and maybe that person isn't right for my show. But when they hear that somebody else is looking for a particular writer for a particular thing, they might say, "Oh, you might try this guy, or reach out, or whatever it is." Hmm. And that makes a huge that can make a huge difference too. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So CBS CBS Writers Mentoring Program led directly to Covert Affairs. Was it sort of were you a, uh, a fellowship hire, so to speak? No. Well, no, not exactly. So, so it's interesting. So, so in the period of time when I first was in, you know, my first year that where nothing was happening, mm-hmm. you know, and the idea was that everybody met me, which, you know, we actually couldn't have been true. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think on some level, any representative, you know, is interested in 
how is how is my client sort of shiny and new? Like, mm. what's the new thing that they're up to? So that's why it's great to have a new spec script to say I'm working on this project to mm. like give give people an opportunity to market you with some new information. Mm. So once I was in the CBS program, my manager and agent had that ammunition because now they could say he just got into this program and we'd love you to meet with him or we'd love you mm. to re meet with him or that sort of thing. So once I was in the program. Suddenly, I was getting more meetings than I had been simply by virtue of the fact that they could market me that way. And then with all of the stuff that I was learning in these mock showrunner meetings, mm. I was just having better meetings. And so mm. uh, I think it was within a couple of months after the CBS program that I ended up uh, getting an offer to join the, the staff of Covert Affairs, which was amazing. Mm. But in that period of time between the end of the program and getting Covert Affairs, you know, I must have had three or four or five at least different showrunner meetings. And I started to hear from my reps that, oh, mm -hmm. it, apparently it was between you and one other person or it was between wow. you and two other people. Like suddenly I could I could feel I can, you know, mark the progress. Mm. Like I knew I was doing better because I was getting better reports. And that right. all sort of, you know, led up to me finally landing a job, which was really extraordinary. Yeah. So talk about Covert Affairs. I, I love that show, by the way. Um, your first you were on that for two years so this was this was yeah. your um first experience in a tv staff what what was it like yeah um well it was uh it was it was great and it was scary you know mm. one of the things that i got to do um in the cbs program which was also terrific is you most people get a chance to sit in on a writer's room during the cbs experience mm -hmm. so i'd gotten to sit in on hawaii Five O. Uh, in, in the first season of that show. And I actually got invited back. So I had spent two days oh, wow. in the room at Hawaii Five O, which was pretty cool. Uh, so I had a sense of what the architecture of the writer's room was. But obviously, it's a whole different thing to sort of be, you know, to be one of the writers in the room. Mm. And, and one of the things that we talked a lot about at CBS, which I think is always great advice, is to feel your way through the room. Like you got to mm. sort of you know, it's like you're invited to dinner at somebody's house. So what is it like to be at their house? Mm. You know, are people raucous and talking all the time? Do people talk more than eat? Do they, you know, they comment on the food? Do they not comment on the food? Do they dress formally? Do they dress informally? So I, I spent a lot of time in the early days of my work at Covert Affairs really kind of sussing it out, you know, and, uh, you know, and just learning both the culture of the room and also, oh, it's my watch learning the culture of the room and uh, and the sense of how to contribute to story, you know, mm. what my methods were. I, I've, I've become a person in the writer's room who does a lot of writing. So, mm. you know, I may be soaking up stuff and there may be people who are there who are much more vocal than I, but I'm always moving through thoughts because I'm jotting them down uh, mm. and I'm constructing pitches and thinking about stuff. And then once I have something down, I can say, here's a thought. Or, you know, if there are a bunch of people, as there were in Covert Affairs, who are super vocal and super type A, you know, those people can pitch and pitch and pitch and pitch. And then when they kind of run out of steam and the room gets quiet, like that would be the time that I'd be like, now I can mm. come into the thing, you know. And so it was really about strategizing how to both feel comfortable and how to and how to make a contribution mm. to the show. And did you find your, your playwriting and acting were good assets? I think so. I think, you know, the first episode that I got to write for Covert Affairs was originally intended to be a bottle episode 
between uh, Annie Walker and uh, and a guy that she wanted to sort of turn who was stuck in a hospital. Mm. And so the, the showrunners came to me and they said, you know, we we think of this. This is almost like a play with these two characters. And so we want to give it to you to see what mm. you can do with it. So I feel like that in that way, my playwriting definitely came in handy uh, as as for that episode. And I also think once I was on set, you know, I, I had witnessed um one of my fellow writers had mentioned in the writer's room that he was intimidated by actors and hmm. didn't know how to speak to them. You know, and having been an actor and been on set as an actor and been in theater all my life, you know, that was the thing. I was always comfortable speaking clearly and directly to, you know, obviously with respect and, and definitely recognizing the hierarchy. But, you know, being on set was was and is a supernatural and fun place for me. And mm. I think that that made a big difference. Yeah. So you, you got two years on Covert Affairs, nice big show. It was smooth sailing at that point, right? <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's interesting because uh, there, there every show has its ups and downs and challenges. Mm. And I think the thing, the thing about Covert Affairs that was so interesting is you know, I came into Covert Affairs when USA, the USA Network was characters welcome. Mm. And when I left Covert Affairs, you know, the U USA had completely changed its brand. And wow. so we had this really interesting moment where, you know, I was on season three and four of that show. And by season four, you know, our little sweet Annie Walker, who I think the show actually owed a little bit more to Grey's Anatomy when I got there, you know, mm. by the end, it was sort of more homeland. Hmm. And uh, she was faking her own identity and she like, you know, pretended to, you know, die. And it was all this stuff. She was, she was literally like, torturing people in an episode, you know, it had a different, you know, so there, there were adjustments, I think, for all hmm. of us around yeah. that shift. Um, but yeah, I left that show. And then between that show and my next show, which was American Crime, hmm. there were three whole years of wow. not being on a show, wow. which was challenging. And mm. at the same time, what I know about myself from my acting life is I'm not afraid to do other work. I'm not afraid mm. to find other things to do because yeah. that's what actors always, almost always have to do. So mm. I taught UCLA Extension School. I worked with coaching clients. Uh, I, had, I had had an extensive uh, career as a, a computer trainer in New York, and I went back to doing some of that. Uh, meanwhile, always looking out for the next thing, writing the next project, and I created this web series, uh, Send Me, which I'm super proud of, which mm. um, which is, you know, back on YouTube and is, uh, you know, it's about a black woman who can send black people back in time to the days of slavery. Mm. Uh, and people want to go the way people want to climb mountains or jump out of airplanes or do dangerous drugs. Uh, and it's it's really a piece that's about how we as Americans connect to our history because there are a lot of people who would say that has nothing to do with me. And at the same time, on some level, it's in our DNA as a, as a culture, as a society. And so the show, uh, which is a drama, you know, deals with the notion of, of how it's in our DNA, whether it's in our DNA. You know, there, the woman's husband doesn't want her to send people anymore. You know, it's really about this debate. Hmm. Uh, and I decided that I, I came up with the idea, decided that we would crowdfund and um, create it from scratch, which was an incredible experience. Wow. Uh, we eventually got, you know, our lead actress was nominated for an Emmy. Wow. Uh, super exciting, you know. Mm. And, and, it, and I found out later that it led directly to my next job on American Crime, 
because mm-hmm. in addition to reading my material, John Ridley and Michael McDonald, who who helped produce that show, they uh, they really liked Send Me. So it, wow. was, uh, it made a big difference. Very, very cool. Yeah. So, so I certainly think that in terms of show running, my experience with Send Me felt like it was perhaps the most, you know, directly translatable to that. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I'd gotten the advice before I made the web series that that would be a really great thing to do. Uh, in, in terms of the industry, the notion of writing something, you know, hiring people, uh, you know, working with directors, working with crew, working with a production team, um, you know, masterminding on some level all of the publicity and all of the advertising and applying. You know, I was the payroll guy as well, and I, you know, I did the Emmy campaign and I did we did a lot of different things. So I feel like that was definitely in that space for me. Uh, and I also want to say too, I, I just recently put send me back up on YouTube. So it's mm. all of the first season, all 40 minutes of the first season are there. And if you go wow. to YouTube and, you know, type in send me web series, you'll, you'll find, uh, you'll find it there. Uh, and I've begun to think about, you know, whatever the future of send me might be as well. So. Mm. Very cool. Very cool. Um, well, we will sort of end that part of the discussion. And I did want to t- talk a little bit with your permission. Um, we're recording this in early June and yes. there's a lot of unrest right now. And I mean, from my perspective, I think one of the, the biggest positives about this time is that people are asking questions that they've never asked before. And I think um, as a as a non-black person, um, it's all I, I see people are, are coming to face with the with the ignorance that a lot of um, Caucasians have had about these issues. And uh, it's it's I mean, a, a there have been some negatives, but I see a lot of positives coming from this. Um, do you do you feel comfortable about talking some of your experiences as an African American writer and actor, and what challenges you may have faced over the years? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's a big topic, and there are a lot of things to potentially to say. One of the things that I agree with you with, though, is that there is I think it is good that white people are getting the opportunity to look at themselves, you know, mm-hmm. to look at their own, you know, internalized racism, their own, uh, you know, their own uh, blindness to some of the things that have been going on. Because mm-hmm. certainly, you know, for for people of color, for black people, I know, you know, that from whatever, you know, age eight or 10, like I've been aware of the disparity. I've been mm-hmm. aware of, you know, growing up as a kid watching television, I've been aware of decades upon decades upon decades of watching TV shows and investing in TV shows with about people who don't look like me, Mm. you know, and so that kind of disparity, that kind of, you know, almost like not exactly, but almost like watching a science fiction show, like I've been watching other people's stories Mm. for, you know, for as long as I can remember. And so the notion of uh, the awakening that I think is happening for white people now is both gratifying, but also kind of like, finally, mm. you know, because because people who look like me have been working with these issues and these challenges and these awarenesses for decade upon decade upon decade. You know, I think it's incredibly tragic that we're in a state where, in a moment where, you know, uh, this particular death, you know, this particular murder of this particular man is sparking people to to action. I feel like on some level that's good. And on another level, it feels heartbreaking mm. that that we've been doing this, especially in the age of cell phones. You know, we've been seeing people die 
for year after year after year after year after year after year. And there have been so many people who have just been making things business as usual. Mm. So I feel like there's a, you know, I'm happy to see the, the bits of movement. I'm really looking for larger pieces of change and I'm really hoping that that happens. And I think, I think the other thing that I've been saying to a lot of my white friends is, I think a lot of this, a lot of the change is up to the dominant culture people. Mm. You know, you know, we've been fighting, we've been marching, we've been complaining about these things to deaf ears and continuing to see these black men and women getting killed. So I feel like for all of the people, for all of the dominant culture folks out there who are asking what they can do, you know, what they can do is, you know, is some of what's been happening is to march, is to donate, is to speak to representatives, is to speak back to each other, you know, is to begin to raise the awareness that I think mm. only dominant culture people can do. Well, and I also want to say too that yeah, yeah, there's something, yeah, there's something ironic. I think. Uh, look, I, am, I empower I empower white people to get stuff done, and I find it ironic in this moment. You know, this is perhaps the only moment in my life where dominant culture people have come to me and said, "What do I do?" <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah. like, wait a second, yeah. you guys are the ones who you know, on some level, societally have this power. Mm. So rather than come to me and ask me what you should do, do what you've done in all of these other spaces where you've led and made change and made things happen. Use those skills to continue to make these things happen. Yeah. Well, I, I think um, there, there's, a, there's an ignorance that goes very deep. And I, I liken it a little bit to the whole Me Too movement and how for most people all this stuff was just they were completely oblivious to it and then yeah, all of a sudden as one one thing surfaces another thing surfaces another thing surfaces and we realize oh my goodness like big respected people in hollywood have been perpetrators of great evil um right. and 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 it took that movement to really open people's eyes to just how much this was happening um, I remember, uh, you know, Derek Hughes, um, yes. he was, he was sharing at a recent panel how, um, e even as a very successful, um, person in Hollywood, um, and he's, he's, he's a 50% mix, he's half Japanese, but right. he, he says that he has to plan extra time to get to any meeting because of the high likelihood that he's going to get stopped by the police. Mm. And, and when he, when he said that in the panel, it was just something I just, it never even occurred to me. Like, how mm. could that be, you know, we're, you know, California, right. Los Angeles, we're so progressive right. and, and, uh, and it's something that I just don't see and, until he said that. And I realized, wow, wow. It yes. doesn't matter what field you're in or how successful you are. This, uh, this is just a part of his life. Yeah. Well, I think that there are, I think the notion of whatever the, whatever the education space is, is a really important notion right now. You know, uh, the, the recent Color of Change report, you know, which is an organization that, that takes a look at these things. Uh, and I was just on their website last night. You know, the statistic is 90% of showrunners are white. Wow. Like 90%. And uh, two thirds of shows have no black writers. Wow. 17% uh, of shows have one black writer. So. You know, these are the things that we, I think, can't be ignoring anymore. We really have to begin to look at, uh, you know, what is it that can shift, 
you know, what is it that can shift, you know, and how can people begin to sort of open their minds and hearts and actually make real change rather than just talk about it or just be in a space of shame or shock. You know, it's really, it's really beyond time for things yeah. to, to change. And I, I would go further. Um, and this is just, just a general impression I get. There's sort of the, um, the black movies or the black shows and right. people who aren't of color aren't typically watching those in the in the same numbers and and i think the the change i mean television has a huge power to change but it's it's going to come from the show that the that the non-black person is watching and that's the show that needs the black writers on staff that's the show that needs the the black yeah. characters um how do you think that's going to change i mean i think one of the things that needs to happen is that people you know, look, I understand, intellectually understand that we all, uh, you know, to sort of harken back to my homeless analogy, we all like to be with people we're comfortable with. Mm -hmm. uh, and and part, of the, part of the recognition is that, that, you know, that for me and for a lot of people of color who, who, you know, based on my background or whatever, like I have been used to being in spaces that are mixed. Mm -hmm. That's been my that's been my life by definition. And there are a lot of white showrunners for whom that's not true. You know, their sp their comfortable spaces are spaces where everybody looks like them. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's time to a consciously shake that up mm -hmm. and for those people to say, I'm going to try something different, you know, but I also think it's an opportunity for more, uh, you know, education and promotion of the black people who, you know, not only letting more more people of color of all kinds uh, and diverse people, you know, uh, gay, lesbian, transgender, all people into the rooms, but also to, to you know, to, to be in the space of nurturing and mentoring those people so that they rise, mm. you know, because one of the things that we continue to see is, you know, the, the, the people who repeat staff writer for three seasons, oh, you know, diversity hires are the gets, worst. Diversity hires. Yeah, yeah, I've heard so many stories of, I mean, they don't get the bump when everybody else does because they were a diversity hire. Right. Because that's the way people sort of look at them and think about them. I mean, I think that there is, I think it is good that people are getting into writer's rooms. You know, having gone to the CBS program, I know that my first season on Covert Affairs, you know, my salary was partly or entirely paid for, not by the showrunners. You know, mm. so they, there was money that brought me into the room. You know, and I think that's valuable because if I hadn't gotten into the room, I probably wouldn't be talking with you here today. You know, mm. so those mechanisms, I think, are really valuable. Yeah. But then the question becomes, what do what do those showrunners do when the writers are in the room? How can they encourage them and support them and nurture them and teach them and, you know, and, and promote them and be willing to see them move on up? You know, what's the, what's the more hands-on approach rather than the less hands-on approach? And how can we encourage more of that, I think, throughout the industry? So what would you, in perfect world, what would you like to see maybe five or ten years from now? What do you think that would look like? Well, it's tough. I was actually uh, in a conversation uh, about this recently on Facebook. And I think, I think the challenge is, you know, I want to see the numbers change. And at the same time, there's a space where you know, the notion of benchmark seems really small, right. you know, and, and so, I, so I feel like I don't want to sort of limit, I don't want to limit the discussion by saying I will be happy if X or Y, but I do think that there is in terms of numbers, but I do think that there is to me, um, I feel like if you've got, especially 
especially, you know, when you have a show, when your shows, because this is what's happening in America, people appreciate on screen, we've seen this statistically, you know, diversity sells, right? Mm -hmm. So we love to see shows where we have a mix of people. But then what's the mix of people creating those shows? Mm. You know, it seems it seems uh, incredibly problematic to have a show that has, you know, a number of people of color in it, but no writers of color, you right. know, because you're talking about issues of culture. You're talking about issues of sensibility. You're talking about, you know, we, we talked about this a bit on God Friended Me, which, again, I love. And I also we also talked uh, in, in my interview for the show, talked about mm. the fact that, you know, Miles Finer you know, as a character who's the lead, he kind of goes into places boldly in a way that as, as a black man, I would never do. Mm. I wouldn't just walk into somebody's apartment or somebody's apartment complex or without knowing that there's, there's a real chance that I'm gonna be stopped or, right. And so I understand that, you know, in the space of that, and I, I love uh, the guys who created that show, Stephen Lillian and Brian Winbrandt, super smart guys. And at the same time, you know, there was a there was certainly i think a reluctance in the fabric of that show of dealing with those kinds of issues for that character you know yeah. so i feel like that's that's another space where i feel like um not only having black people around but also being willing to look in the face of these things that are realities for those kinds of characters i think on some level can elevate the work mm. and and i think speaking about ignorance a lot of people just wouldn't even realize. Um, I've I've worked on several. I, I work primarily in reality TV. I've worked on several series that were 100% African American characters, um, people on screen, and our entire post department, there wasn't a single person of color. Um, and I think people would just assume when they watch those shows, oh, they must right. have lots of lots of people of color working on the show. And nope. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, I mean, those reports are always shocking to me, whether it's um, the reports on how many women are on staff, or how many minorities are on staff. I mean, they're always just numbers that almost seem like they, they couldn't be true. Yes, yes, it does feel that way. And, and I think what, what the requirement is, is for more, more white people to be speaking up and out about these things, you know, to say to whatever the studio or the network is or to each other, you know, we really need to have some women in post. We really need to have some black people in post. We really need to have more, you know, more Asian Americans on set. We really need to have, you know, more trans people, you know, in the costume department, whatever it is. Like the more we begin to do that, I think the more things will change and the more the more people are just sort of stay in the space of the status quo, that the, the, the less happens. Hmm. Yeah, and I and I have to say, I as a viewer, I really do appreciate when I when I can see that there's an attempt being made, um, in in the stories. Um, I I I I love God friended me. I love um, the fact that the 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 core characters are diverse. Um, yeah, one of the first things that appealed to me about the show. Um, and I and I'm not alone out there. Yes, for sure. I mean, I, I have to say it was incredibly gratifying for me to be on a show that 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 is about a black family, you know, and uh, and to write for all those characters was really delightful. And at the same time, you know, the the my my desire was and I think a lot of the we had a very diverse writers room. Mm. And and my desire was, you know, to lean into some more cultural spaces uh, and and to do it uh, to do it that much more 
with that much more authenticity. Uh, and that's what I really hope for for the future for for all shows that that have people of color that are that are trying to represent America. Hmm. Well, let's you know, let's actually do it in a way that feels like it can be a little truer than it's been. Hmm. Very, very cool. Um, our last section of the podcast, I always go into sort of advice for greener writers, um, sort of mistakes that you see people making, especially in your coaching company. Yes. I'm sure you see a lot of that. Um, let's let's take a, a, just a couple minutes to talk about that. What are the kind of mistakes that you see people making that they can easily change um, yes. to have more success? Well, I think, you know, one of the things I, I, I publish a coaching e-blast, a newsletter that goes out every two weeks, and, and uh, one went out today, this morning. And, and the topic of it really was about how we move through the challenges and the adversity. So often, I think we, it's a difficult industry, you know, and so there are, you may send out something and you may not hear back, or you may, you know, the notion of the sense of cheerful persistence, you know, the mm. sense of understanding and recognizing that really challenging things happen to people in this industry, no matter who they are, whether they're men or women or, you know, and so the sense of, uh, I see a lot of people who just sort of take those things personally and say, well, I, nobody's responding to me. I can't, you know, to, to sort of get into this kind of emotional funk. Mm. I feel like there are a couple of things that we can do. One is to just be persistent in our work. You know, there's always, what what is the next project you're working on? Mm. Like, don't wait for your manager or your agent or somebody to say, what do you, you know, you got to have the next thing and the next yeah. thing and be proactive in that space. And the other thing I think, which is more of an emotional tip, is really to have the opportunity to, uh, to find what lifts you. You know, mm. what is your... There is something, I think, for me, in all phases of this industry that, that I've been in, where I recognize that being in the entertainment industry, as joyous as it can be, is also, on some level, a constant grief process. Mm. <laughs> so how can I mourn yeah. the last thing, right? Yeah. The thing that I didn't get, the email I didn't get, the job I didn't get, the person yeah. I didn't connect with. What's my mechanism for mourning that? blessing myself, and then, you know, moving on to the next thing. Like, because unless yeah. I have that methodology in place, I'm just going to keep being stuck. I'm just going to mm. keep being frustrated. So how can I do that? And I think the other thing that is a really big thing that we've talked about already is just this networking space. You know, I say, I say, I tweet, and I also say, like, it's not just your grandmother who wants to hear right. from you. You know, to, to really be in the proactive space of reaching out, saying hello, connecting with people, just as a matter of course, yeah. is really a job strategy that a lot of people have just forgotten about. Yeah. Uh, I think it's really, really important. Yeah. Sometimes, you know what? I Sometimes people can be afraid to reach out to people, especially if yes. somebody's sort of at a higher level than them. Yes. Yeah. I, I can't remember ever... And I've obviously through the podcast, I've I've gotten connected with showrunners and some really high level people in Hollywood. I can't remember ever somebody saying, "I don't appreciate you reaching out to me about this." <laughs> like, right. like if somebody yeah. goes through through a hard time, I'll I'll send you know a, uh, an email saying, "Hey, I'm I'm thinking about you. Sorry, you've gone through this hard time." Or if somebody gets a show picked up, I will always send an email to the showrunner saying, "Hey, congrats." Yeah, there's not and, a person on the planet who doesn't appreciate being yeah. celebrated in some way or other. And mm. I think one of the big differences between, you know, some of my coaching clients who are afraid to network is that they think it's all about just asking for stuff, mm. you know, and it's not that 
you know, it's not just like, hey, can you hire me now? Or right. hey, can you hire me tomorrow? You know, yeah. it's got to be more like this sort of steady stream of, I hope you're well. I heard about this thing. Congratulations. Mm. You know, the more you normalize it in that way, I think the easier it is to do. Yeah. Very cool. Well, uh, last place we'll go is um, advice to younger self. Knowing what you know now, um, <laughs> if you had a chance to speak to the younger version of yourself just starting out, mm. um, what might you say? Wow, that's a good one. Um, you know, I might just say uh, you're doing great. <laughs> you know? I mean, there's, there's so much space where I think I, I've had these moments of like, oh, no, it's all over. Yeah. You know, I've burned a bridge or I've this is a dead end or I'll never blah, 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 or I'll never get another job or I shouldn't have written such and such. Yeah. And I think I think for me, it's you know, it's really about saying you, you, you're doing great stuff, like mm. keep going, keep blessing yourself, keep showing up and keep keep having your heart open and uh, just keep making stuff because that's really what it's all about. Well, that is a great place to end up. Um, and uh, please do stay on for a minute after we finish here. But uh, I really appreciate all of your fountain of wisdom and also just, just learning about you. Can, I mean, you've had uh, some really cool experiences in your life and in a lot of your work, I think people can really learn from. Um, yeah, super yeah. fun to be here. Really great to talk about yeah. it. So thanks so much, Steve. You're welcome. Drivingfootage.com provides 4K nine angle driving plates for film and television. Over 14,000 clips are available for locations all around Southern California, with more areas coming soon. A fully equipped camera car with height-adjustable rig is available for custom shoots and second-unit photography. Visit drivingfootage.com for details. avgearguide.com provides computer and gear rentals serving the L.A. area, including laptops with final draft, as low as $9 a day with long booking rates available. They also scan photos, documents, video and audio tapes, and film reels to digital so you can easily share with your friends and family. Mention the name of the TV Writer Podcast and you will get 10% off your order. Visit avgearguide.com for details. Full disclosure, I do own both of these companies. By supporting them, you help me bring new in-person video interviews to you. And that's it for today. Please watch for new episodes every Tuesday on all of the places you can find the podcast. Podbeam or Spotify or iTunes or YouTube. You can find this podcast at the tvwriterpodcast.com site or also at scriptmag.com. And uh, please do subscribe. Please do follow me on Twitter at Gray Jones is my handle. And uh, also, if you'd like to support this podcast, you can do it for as little as 25 cents per episode. You can find out how you can become a patron of the podcast or a sponsor of the podcast. Um, at tvwriterpodcast.com slash support. Thanks for joining me. Bye-bye.